this college career ensemble. And all the people said, amen. Thank you so much. That was great. This morning, I shared concerning the place and the teaching that can come to us out of the study of the lives of the men and women whose stories are told in the Word of God. I want to, I want to talk about another man tonight, a significant individual in the Bible story. Quite a contrast to a man by the name of Saul. Saul, now not Saul who became Paul, but King Saul. First king of the nation. He had everything in the wide world going for him. He started out humble. Bible tells us that he was good to look at. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He just looked like a king. He had a regal bearing. He sought the will of God and wanted to be faithful to what God wanted him to do. But somewhere down the way, he lost sight of the reality of the presence of God and that he was really on the throne of the nation only because God had put him there. And as we look at the life of King Saul, we see his is the story of a progression downward until at the very conclusion of King Saul's life. We see him literally as a suicide. And he's crying out, I have erred exceedingly. I've sinned. I've played the fool. But there's another Saul. The Saul that we know as Paul. His is also the story of a progression of character. But in a different direction entirely. Paul, Paul's story is the story of climbing a mountain higher and higher. Paul's story is the one of, of getting ever closer to God. It's interesting the various progressions that we find described in the scriptures. You read the first psalm. It is the story indeed of a progression of how a man of God moves well. Paul has literally given us in the letter that he wrote to Rome a spiritual autobiography. We glean from the various writings, from the letters of Paul, those influences that came into his life, those vibrations that touched him and caused him to be the kind of person that he was. But never is it spelled out more 
perfectly for us than in the letter to the Roman Christians. And so I want us to take a look tonight at several passages of Scripture, nine to be exact, from the Roman letter, and in it see in Paul's own words his progression upward, remembering that it, his life is played out against the background of that first king of Israel, Saul, whose life was a progression downward. Look with me in the seventh chapter of the Roman letter and the 14th verse. The seventh chapter and the 14th verse. Where he writes, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now in the King James translation, I believe you will find that Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Carnal. Remember, we are tracing the progression of the growth, the spiritual growth and the spiritual development of this giant of God. And so we have to begin where he begins as he acknowledges, I was carnal. He states it here in the present, I am unspiritual, I am carnal. The statement of the reality of looking at himself and seeing himself exactly as he is. He says, sold under sin. Paul was writing to the Romans that he realized. He realized this truth that the law is spiritual and deals with spiritual matters and with his spirit rather than with his actions. And so he is admitting to himself and admitting to them, my life was carnal. He said, a Christian, I trusted Christ, but I had none of the glory and the joy and the excitement and the thrill and the victory of the spiritual life. I was a Christian, but unspiritual. Is it possible to be that way? Of course it is. There are millions of people who reject Jesus Christ. They do not accept his claims that he is the Son of God and the Savior. They refuse to believe in him and refusing to believe are lost and dead in sin. There are millions of others who believing in Jesus are washed of their sins, cleansed and made whole and perfect in him but somewhere along the way live more by the standards of the world than the standards of Jesus. Millions of Christians who make their decisions on the basis of their own mind or the basis of their peer group 
or on the basis of something of the world rather than on the decisions that Christ would be honored by. And these are Christians who are carnal. You can't really tell the carnal difference, the carnal Christian, you can't tell the difference between him than the person who lives next door who's not a Christian. For they'll buy their beer out of the same place and they'll go to the same joints and they'll tell the same dirty stories. And there's not much difference visibly to the one who's lost and to the Christian who's carnal, who does not live his or her life under the control and the direction of the Spirit of God. And Paul said, I had to come to that place to where I acknowledged in my own life that I was unspiritual. Now here, this man is a man who's a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, studied Jewish law under the great Gamaliel, was able to be recognized in any of the legal systems, both of Rome and of Judea, a brilliant individual. And he says, I have to admit that I was carnal, religious, but not godly. Religious, but not spirit-controlled. And so he writes to them this confession in the seventh chapter and the 14th verse. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. When one is a slave, that means he has no will of his own. It means he cannot plan what he will do tomorrow or next week or next year. He is under the total direction of his master. The slave is one who is not to think for himself or plan for himself. Someone else will do all that. And Paul said, past brilliance accounted for nothing. For I was a slave to sin. Then in that seventh chapter, let's look at the 24th verse. Remember, we are tracing his upward progression in his own spiritual character. From the acknowledgement of his carnal nature, he's now ready to take a step forward. The Christian who is not willing to look in the mirror and to recognize the tendency towards sin rather than the tendency towards saintliness is not on a progression upward. It is the acknowledgement of where we are in on our spiritual pilgrimage that then enables us under God to do something about it. The next step up is in the 24th verse in that same chapter where Paul wrote to these Roman Christians, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
You see, it's natural that when a man looks in a mirror, when a woman looks in the mirror and says, hey, you're not fooling anybody but yourself, then that individual wanting to be somebody for God cries out as Paul cried out, what a wretched person that I really am. He was looking at himself by the light of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at yourself in the light of somebody else, when you measure your own Christianity by the yardstick of somebody else's Christianity, you can always make a pretty good case for yourself. But when we look at ourselves in the light that Jesus sheds on us, when we measure ourselves by the measuring rod of Jesus, then we really see ourselves and Paul said, I saw myself really as I was and really as I am. And I had to declare, oh, wretched man that I am. And then there comes that yearning to be delivered. Now let's look over in the first chapter of that letter. Romans 1, 16. We have the next step up the spiritual progression, where he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. Here you see, out of the reality of acknowledging exactly the fact that he was a carnal Christian, seeing himself, not wanting to be a carnal Christian, confessing it to God, saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Then he comes to that glorious and wonderful experience that we know is the grace of God. And the grace of God shed in his heart and touching every fiber of his life as he had come to see what Jesus Christ had meant to him, then he was willing to declare at the very beginning of this letter to the Roman Christians, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of God. I'm not ashamed of it. You say, wonderful, I'm not ashamed either. No. Nope. Have you ever been in a situation where three or four folks are sitting around having a cup of coffee? Somebody's really lambasting the church. Somebody else picks it up and said, yeah, everything's sorry. All the, all the bad things happening, electronic evangelism today, everything's bad. And you sit there and you listen and you don't say a good word for the good things that are going on. You see, doesn't that put you or me in that situation as one who is really acting like we're ashamed of the good news? You see, we... We need to stop and we need to say, well, now, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute. There are a lot of bad things going on, but there are a lot of good things happening in the kingdom of God. There are a lot of good things happening over at my church. 
Well, I know some folks who are growing in the Lord and happy in Him. You see, Paul said out of his carnal nature, being a carnal Christian, he would never ever have been able to come to the place to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Don't you talk against my Lord. Don't you talk against my Jesus. Don't you say a word against my church. Being a carnal Christian, he would not have been able to do that. So it shows the progression in the spiritual development and discipline and pilgrimage of this man who became such a giant. He grew into it. He wasn't born full-fledged into this status of great spiritual gianthood. He came to that place where he said, I'm not ashamed. Here, the new experience, the saving power, the salvation that in Christ meant for him victory. It meant a transformation in his own life. It meant the deliverance. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Then he was saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it has delivered me. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now let's look in that same first chapter and up a couple of verses to the 14th verse. Where he says, I am obligated. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Both to the wise and to the foolish. I am obligated. I am a debtor, he said. I'm a debtor to the Jews for all that the Jews have meant in the will of God. That's what Paul is saying. I'm indebted to the Greeks for all that the Greeks have meant in the, in the Roman Hellenistic world, in the formulation of their whole logic and thought process. Paul said, I'm a debtor to them. It's a good thing when we come to the place where we are willing openly and honestly to acknowledge our indebtedness to other folks for what they've meant to us. You and I are indebted to an awful lot of people, people we've probably never seen, people we've never met. I'm indebted to some folks with engineering know-how and skill We've been able to put together what we call an automobile. You think of all the aspects of that, that it takes to make an automobile go and to keep an automobile running. I put a lot of miles on an automobile every year. I suppose this year probably I'll put 60,000 miles. For somebody that's not a traveling salesman, that's pretty good. And I'm indebted to people I've never seen who've planned, who've dreamed, who thought about, who were able to create and envision the automobile and others who've, who've produced all the different parts of it. You think of the rubber that grows to make the tires, when you think of the steel that comes from the ground in the foundries, when you think of the, of the people who make the cloth, when you think of the plastics industry, when you think of all of that, how it all flows together, and the automobile that I'm privileged to drive. I'm indebted to a lot of folks who've worked in order to make that automobile possible as an instrument and a tool for me. I'm indebted 
I'm indebted to people I've never seen whose names I don't know, who love the Lord Jesus and living on the eastern seaboard wanted a new, young, growing nation to know about Jesus. And so the pioneers with Jesus in their hearts and with the gospel on their lips moved out across the territory and across the Appalachians, across the Smoky Mountains. I'll tell you, when you drive through some of the areas and when you cross those rivers and you do it in the comparative comfort of an air-conditioned automobile of today and you think about what our forefathers did in moving across this country, the courage that it took. I'm indebted. I'm indebted to people made long, hard, arduous, slow, dangerous trips, the journeys westward, civilizing, sharing Jesus. And it was because one time then the gospel story got over into South Texas in Houston where I was a little boy growing up. They knew about Jesus over there and they told me about Jesus. You see, I'm indebted to a lot of folks, and so are you. I have read a couple of times your excellent history that Jack wrote. And seeing there the names of people in the 150, now one years of the existence of this congregation, I have thought as I've looked that list over and as I've read about some of those folks in your 151 year history I'm indebted to them for their work and their giving and their praying and their visiting and their agonizing and their coming together and building places of the worship of God and building this house where I have the privilege for this time in the life of this church to preach you see how indebted I am to people long dead, long gone. Now, in Paul's spiritual progression, Paul said, I am a debtor. I'm a debtor to the lost, whether Greek or barbaric, wise or unwise. He said, I'm a debtor to them. Now, when you are in debt to somebody, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pay your debt. Nobody likes a deadbeat. He said, I'm a debtor. There's a debt I must pay. How do you pay a debt? How do you pay a debt who've been spiritual fathers and mothers to you? How do you pay a debt to people who... How do you do that? How do you pay the debt? to people who are long dead as far as this physical existence is concerned. You pay the debt by being for someone else and for a coming generation what a previous generation was for you. That's how you pay your debt. Every one of us that knows Christ as Savior, we have accepted him because somebody told us about Jesus. And if you don't tell somebody else you'll be the last link in the chain. 
Oh, thank God, hopefully there'll be somebody else that'll keep telling the story, that'll keep teaching the Sunday school classes, that'll, that'll continue to be concerned about boys and girls and men and women growing in Christ-likeness and church training. There'll be folks who will be concerned about that, but what about you? Are you a debtor? Are, do you feel any indebtedness to those who taught you, to those who prayed for you? to those who visited you, to those who gave in order that you might have the facility in which to exercise your Christian liberty and your Christian privilege? Do you feel any indebtedness at all? Then the only way you can pay your debt to them, the only way I can, is when in turn I do for someone else what was done for me and the same for you. And Paul on this spiritual progression said, I'm debtor. But now let's look at that 15th verse in that first chapter. He said, that's why I am so eager. That's why I am so ready to preach the gospel also to you. Or at Rome. Do you see it's growing with him in this spiritual autobiography? In this letter to the Roman Christians, it's growing. He's getting bigger. He's becoming wiser in the things of the spirit. He's becoming enthusiastic and it almost... Can, it cannot be contained within him. And he says, I'm a, a debtor to so many folks. i got to pay my debt. And now I'm ready. I'm eager, he says. I'm eager. I'm eager to pay the debt at any cost. I'm ready to do whatever the king asked me to do. I'm ready, he says. Ready. It's the willing heart that surely must be Please, Jesus, more than anyone else. The life that's willing. Lord, if you'll tell me what you want me to do, I'll do my best to do it. Lord, if you'll share with me, if you'll give me a picture, a vision, a, a goal, a spot out there on the horizon of what you want me to do and be, I'll do my best in your strength to do it. Lord, I'm, I'm ready. Ready. It's the willingness. It's the readiness of the Christian to respond when the master directs. Eager, he said, to be at the disposal of the master for any job, no matter how big it is, no matter how little it is, no matter how public it is, no matter how private it is, that I'm ready, I'm eager to declare my love for Jesus. He said to you in Rome also, and we need to translate that to you who live in Jackson also. Turn over in the eighth chapter. We see the next step in the progression. In the 8th chapter and the 38th verse, now he writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here he's saying it's just, it's just like, like someone standing and speaking 
to the crowds and the voice gets louder and sharper as he says, oh, the conviction, the conviction. I knew that I was a carnal Christian and not living for God. I was wretched in that. But now I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know that I'm in, in debt to God and I'm in debt to, to those who bless me and those who taught me. He said, I'm eager and I'm ready to be what God wants me to be. And I'm convinced on the basis of this that whether I preach in Rome or whether it's in Jerusalem or wherever I go, said Paul, I am convinced that there's no power in all the world, up above, down below, all around me, there's no power anywhere. It's going to be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, when it's that kind of conviction, when you're living on that kind of a level, when you're living on that kind of a plane, it really, oh, it may hurt you when folks say something unkind about you for doing the right thing or for living the Christian way. But you see, it can't stop you when you're living on that level and on that plane in the reality the reality of the protective power of God the protective angels of God the protective presence of the Holy Spirit of God round about us as a Christian because we are declaring the gospel, because in our eagerness we want all boys and girls and all the men and women and all the households, we want everybody to know about Jesus and we, we're eager and we're ready to tell the story. Remember, it is at that point, at the very height of our readiness and our eagerness, it is at that point that the devil will come and shoot his biggest guns at us. The devil exists to rob God of glory. Who is it that glorifies God? His children. Those of us who belong to him, who have been adopted into his family, by the acceptance of his grace in our lives. We are his trophies of grace. And then as his trophies of grace, when we stumble, when we cuss, when we drink, when we gossip, when we tattle, when we stop praying, The devil cheapens our witness. And who's hurt? We rob God of glory. Paul said, in the eagerness to serve, to declare, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he said, I am overjoyed in the knowledge that as I proclaim it, I know the devil will lash out against me. I know that there will be those of the physical realm, the moral realm that will lash out against me. He says, but I'm not worried about that because I am convinced 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation that will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that progression upward to live like that and you take your stand and you make your witness and you give your all to Jesus. Look with me over in the 11th chapter. In the 11th chapter and the 13th verse, here's what he wrote. I am talking to you Gentiles insomuch as I am the ambassador to the Gentiles. The word apostle is used, but it could be translated ambassador. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. He says, I am an ambassador. An ambassador is one who with the credentials of the head of state of his country goes to another country and to that head of state and he presents his credentials to that individual saying, I am an emissary, I am an envoy, I am an ambassador and in Perfectly legitimate parlance, he could say, I am an apostle of my government. An ambassador has no business at the court of St. James in England. An American ambassador over there has no right to get up and to speak his own mind and to say his own thing and to define his own American policy over there. He is to do what? He is to be a reflector of, a carrier of, a carrier out of the policy of the government of the United States. When one becomes an ambassador, when one becomes an apostle, he's really somebody. Our fellow Tennessean, Joe Rogers from Nashville, Tennessee, is the American ambassador to France. And if over there he did his own thing, went his own way, then he would not be doing the government or those of us who are the citizens of this country a favor. So you see, out of this progression, out of this growth, he said, I knew it was unspiritual and I was wretched in it. But then I had Christ in my heart and I'm not ashamed of that. And I acknowledge my debt to all of those who have blessed me. And out of that I'm ready and I'm eager to be a preacher and a proclaimer. I'm convinced nothing can stop me. And I am an apostle. An apostle to the Gentiles. He was always ready. What about you and what about me? Are we always ready? ready to acknowledge before the community club that we're a part of, ready to acknowledge before our peers in the, in the school where we go. Are we ready to acknowledge to the folks in the office where we work? Are we ready to acknowledge to that circle of friends? Listen, I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The realization of that, once we can arrive at that place in our own spiritual progression, then our life becomes markedly different. When we do realize that every word that we do say and everything that we do think and every kind of action that we do take 
that it will reflect either good or bad upon the name of Jesus. Look at the 15th chapter. 15th chapter in the 29th verse. We come rapidly to the close. Paul, in his upward progression, writes, I know, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Oh, he was sure, sure of God's power, sure of the blessing, and sure that because he was in the will of God, that when he was with them, he could be a channel for them of the blessings that God wanted them to have. You see, it's not enough to be a spiritual sponge, simply to hear, to listen, to soak it up. But rather, we're to be a conduit. We're to be a pipeline. We're to bless others with the name of Jesus. And one last. In the last chapter of the Roman letter, the 16th, and the 19th verse, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. See what he said? I am full of joy over you. It's good to live in such a way that there are things in each of our personal lives that we can present to Jesus and say to him, I've done my best with it, Master. But there's something that grows a little beyond that joy. And that's when you see your kids, kids you've prayed over and agonized over, and yearned over, dreamed for. When you see your children in love with Jesus and giving themselves to him with abandon. To have joy in seeing your spiritual children be like Jesus. The joy that a Sunday school teacher knows in seeing a class know more of the Word of God and because of knowing more of the Word of God week by week and month by month, growing to live more like Jesus. The great joy of anybody who has the honor to speak from the sacred desk is the joy over a period of time to see people making the kind of response in their personal Christian lives that cause them out of more of the word that they know because you've tried to be faithful in teaching it and preaching it that you see others glowing in the love and the presence of the Master. 
And Paul, as the very climax of his life, said, I'm full of joy when I think about your victories. Full of joy when I think about what you are and what you are becoming. The progression. It is a progression that ought to challenge us. And at whatever level or whatever step of these different plateaus that we've looked at in Paul's spiritual pilgrimage, wherever you have to peg yourself tonight, why don't you take a yearning look at the next one up and pray that with God's help you'll grow and grow and grow and grow and grow.